Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, A Progress in the Treatment of Non-Hodgkin's Lymphoma. And today's program is supported by a grant from Genentech and, Diana, and the Diana Napoli Fund, and we thank them for their support of this program. Now, um, we have um, a lot of you on the call today, so there are 255 participants on the call. And you come mostly from the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also do have a number of international participants, I'll name the countries, from Brazil, Canada, Germany, India, Iraq, Russia, South Africa, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call. And it's really a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Um, also, I do want to acknowledge that there are a number of blood cancer organizations um, and cancer organizations that have helped to spread the word in addition to all of your interest in the program today. So I, we're just delighted to have you all on the call today. Now, before we um, introduce our first speaker, um, there are a few questions I'd like to ask all of you um, just to get a sense of what you know um, before the program starts. That would be, it helps us in planning future programs to be sure that we're on target with what you need. So I'm going to start with the first question, and on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the important role of staging and subtypes in the treatment of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, or NHL. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the current standard of care for indolent, aggressive, relapsed, and refractory non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the importance of novel and emerging treatments for non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I'm going to add just two more questions. I understand tips to manage the symptoms, side effects, and discomfort of non-Hodgkin lymphoma in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. I understand the significance of clinical trials for non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in, again, the, uh, answering these questions. Those of you who are live streaming, um, it really helps us as we move forward in planning all of our future programs. So thank you so much. Um, and now it's my pleasure to introduce our speakers. Um, I know you really want to hear. Um, and so our first speaker is Dr. Ajay Kopal. And Dr. Kopal is Professor of Medicine, Division of Medical Oncology, 
University of Washington, member of Clinical Research Division, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, Clinical Research Director and Associate Medical Director, Hematology and Hematologic Malignancies, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. Dr. Kopal will be addressing an overview of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, signs and symptoms in the context of COVID-19, NHL staging and subtypes, including indolent and aggressive, and the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Gopal. Thank you, uh, Dr. Messner. Thank you, Carolyn, for that kind introduction. And it's a pleasure to be here uh, to speak to everyone and to be here with my uh, colleagues uh, in the uh, lymphoma field, uh, Andy Evans and Tom uh, Haberman. Um, so I'm going to speak first about, uh, with, regarding an overview of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And I think it sounds like I suspect many of you are quite uh, aware uh, this is the uh, most common uh, blood cancer in terms of incidence uh, in the United States. Over uh, 80,000 uh, folks will be uh, diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma in uh, 2021. Um, and uh, signs and symptoms in the context of uh, COVID-19, you know, that's a it's a it's a tricky a bit of a tricky situation. I think. Uh, in terms of uh, presenting how people are diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma, uh, it somewhat depends on the kind of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Many can uh, present with uh, development of uh, enlarged lymph nodes, which can be uh, lumps that one can feel sometimes in the areas where the, that we can feel the lymph nodes, uh, such as the neck and armpits and groin, um, unexplained fatigue, uh, sometimes things like uh, fevers and drenching night sweats. Other times can be uh, low uh, normal blood cell blood counts or sometimes even a high uh, white blood cell count, uh, uh, high lymphocyte count. Um, persistent or progressive uh, discomfort uh, as well uh, could be associated with a diagnosis uh, of, uh, of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. It's still a relatively rare cancer, though, and um, most times when people have aches or pains, it's not uh, lymphoma. It's something else. Uh, sometimes this can be potentially confused with uh, COVID-19 infection. However, that's pretty easy to sort out with uh, testing for that. Uh, testing is very widely available in many places, so that's uh, pretty uh, easy to sort out. I think the bigger issue that we've seen uh, through the pandemic is that many times, I probably for many diagnoses, people are uh, delayed in being seen because of concerns of uh, being exposed uh, to uh, coronavirus. So uh, unfortunately, we've seen more folks come in with more advanced stage disease uh, uh, because they've stayed home and not wanted to go out and, and see their uh, care providers. So we're going to talk a little bit about telehealth and telemedicine, which is used extensively in the, uh, we have, we do quite a bit in the U.S. Um, and, you know, that may be one way to get folks in the door quickly uh, to try to sort out whether or not this is something that needs to be uh, evaluated further. Um, I'm also going to talk a little bit about uh, the different types of non-Hodgkin lymphoma uh, and the indolent and aggressive uh, subtypes and staging and, and other topics related to uh, non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, so when one uh, has a diagnosis or makes a diagnosis of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, the first thing we typically do is to try to 
sort out where uh, the lymphoma is located, and that's something called that we call staging. And usually there's a test called a PET CT scan that we do in most lymphomas. Uh, sometimes we do a bone marrow biopsy as well uh, because that's also a, an area where uh, blood cancer cells can go, and we can uh, see if the lymphoma is there. Um, I think it's important to note, though, that with non-Hodgkin lymphoma, if we say somebody has advanced stage disease, stage 3 or 4 disease, it doesn't really carry that same connotation uh, as in other cancers uh, because uh, these are blood cells. It's not surprising that they go to multiple places. They move around the body, um, and we can still uh, be very effective at treating them even and often curing them uh, even uh, if they are in advanced uh, stage. Um, there are many different subtypes of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Uh, we can divide them into the kinds of cells they come from. Uh, the most common are B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma um, and less common uh, T-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Those are rarer. Uh, and then there can also be uh, natural killer cell uh, cancers as well. So that's based on the type of cell. Um, but we can also divide them into how they behave. Uh, we can lump them into indolent and aggressive. Um, so, for example, indolent lymphoma, the most common kind is something called follicular lymphoma. Other indolent lymphomas include marginal zone lymphoma, something called lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma, small lymphocytic lymphoma. Uh, these are indolent lymphomas, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the strategy there. And then there are the aggressive uh, types of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, such as diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is the most common type of lymphoma in general and the most common aggressive lymphoma. There's something, a relatively new category called high-grade B-cell lymphoma, uh, Burkitt's lymphoma, peripheral T-cell lymphoma. Uh, these we generally put in the category of aggressive lymphoma. And then mantle cell lymphoma is something that kind of falls in between and sometimes gets put in the indolent group and sometimes gets put in the aggressive group. So the overall subtype drive our strategy and approach. So the type of lymphoma and the stage of lymphoma uh, usually drive our approach. So with aggressive lymphomas, uh, our, we generally treat with curative intent uh, and uh, because we know we have several chances to cure these lymphomas. And uh, we don't observe usually. We just go in and treat and uh, we um, move ahead with fairly, fairly standardized approaches. With indolent lymphomas, these are really more of a uh, management strategy. Um, we do know that most people with indolent lymphomas will have normal uh, lifespans and survival, uh, and we have many, many options. And uh, in some cases, these can be more of a nuisance kind of cancer uh, that have to be managed uh, chronically over time. But for the minority that have uh, more serious uh, indolent lymphoma, we have new potentially curative options such as uh, CAR T-cells uh, for those who might need it. But that's probably really the minority of patients uh, with uh, follicular lymphoma, uh, for example. Um, so I mentioned before uh, that uh, I was going to touch a little bit on the role of telehealth and telemedicine. And you know, I think uh, my colleagues would probably agree that uh, the COVID uh, pandemic has really taught us a lot about how we can actually uh, better take care of uh, our patients. And um, 
telehealth really has has expanded our ability to uh, easily uh, uh, make an appointment to check in uh, with our patients and I and certainly when I do it I almost feel like I'm making a house call because you can you know f- you feel like an old-time doctor who's uh, going and seeing where people live and uh, and really understanding the context of of, uh, of uh, what they're going through uh, on the home front um, and um, it also allows us to see folks uh, that come from quite a distance um, and uh, they don't need to travel, they don't have to take the time and expense and then potential risk as well uh, during the pandemic of traveling. So it's really allowed all of us to, to, to I think, care for our patients in a, in a much uh, simpler way from a patient's side. However, it, not everything can be done by telehealth, and it's important to remember that, that particularly with blood cancers, looking at the labs, the blood counts are really a component, a key component of uh, assessing uh, the disease or side effects from the treatment. So we typically do still need to get lab work uh, for folks that are getting, that are, have telehealth visits. And then often, often uh, we still need to examine uh, individuals, not only to assess their lymph nodes, for example, but also to get a better feel of their overall fitness to try to tailor the right therapy uh, to their situation. So, so telehealths are great, but they're not, they can't replace an in-person visit in all cases. And then, of course, um, when, if treatment is needed, particularly infusions and things like that, uh, those usually uh, need to be uh, done in person. Um, I think one other uh, great uh, opportunity for telehealth is that for individuals that are looking for uh, or exploring clinical trials, uh, many of the consults can be done initially via telehealth, uh, saving a long trip uh, to find out about a study. And if the study is something that's right uh, for an individual, then they can make a subsequent trip and come and see us uh, in person. So I think telehealth has really helped in terms of uh, exploring clinical trial options and getting second opinions. So so that's uh, my uh, uh, brief overview of uh, non-Hodgkin lymphoma and our, our current uh, uh, situation. Uh, and um, I'd be happy to take questions at the end, and I would like to turn things back over to uh, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Gopal. That was really outstanding. It's a wonderful overview, and I'm really setting the stage for the program today. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And uh, our next speaker is Dr. Um, Andrew Evans. Dr. Evans is Professor of Medicine, Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, Associate Director for Clinical Services, Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey, Director, Lymphoma Program, Division of Blood Disorders, Medical Director, Oncology Service Line, RWJB Barnabas Health. And Dr. Evans will be addressing um, relapsed and refractory non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, novel treatment approaches, clinical trial updates, how research adds to your treatment options, and your comfort level with adherence. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Evans. Dr. Metzner, thank you so much for that nice introduction and for the invitation to, to speak with you and, and my colleagues. And as you mentioned, Dr. Gopal did a fantastic job kicking things off. And so uh, really my most of my time will be talking about uh, relapsed refractory 
non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and associated treatments. And the good news is that it's very difficult to squeeze that into 10 minutes um, due to really a nice expansion of different options for patients. But I'll run through most of them in this time. And so thinking about how do we treat relapse refractory non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, well, certainly, as Dr. Kopal alluded to, there are a multitude of different subtypes. And the good news is our treatments are getting more and more personalized, at least down to the point, certainly, of, well, which subtype of lymphoma? And we know there are, well, more than 60, 70 different subtypes. And yes, some of the treatments cross over to multiple subtypes, but some of them are only for one subtype. And that's a good thing as we design therapies that work for the right patient at the right time. And so to step back a second, uh, one way to think about uh, really, and I'm going to mainly talk about non chemotherapy options, more targeted options. One way when we say targeted therapy, what does that mean? That can mean a few different things. I think one way to think about it can be, do we target the surface of a lymphoma cell? A lot of research over the decades have been what these called epitopes or antigens. You can't see it with the naked eye, but researchers certainly started to do that in the late 20th 20th century to see what what are these entities that stick out of a lymphoma cell, and quite frankly, that lets you then develop targeted therapies to go right to the lymphoma cell, attach, and hopefully uh, get rid of that that lymphoma cell and and all the neighboring lymphoma cells. Maybe another second category is targeting inside the cell, the so-called DNA, RNA. Every cell in our body has DNA, RNA. So do lymphoma cells. It's abnormal DNA and RNA, Uh, That's the bad news. The good news is we've identified many of them, not all of them. That's why we still need a lot more research. We've identified many of them, and moreover, working with our pharmaceutical colleagues have designed novel therapeutics, some of them pills, as I'll mention, as, as many of the audience likely knows, to go after that lymphoma cell. And so to dive a little deeper, where did it all get kicked off? It's hard to believe it's been almost 25 years that rituximab, was FDA approved in November of 1997, a monoclonal B-cell antibody that really was one of, frankly, the first targeted therapeutics in all of cancer. And we still all use it today, um, many times a day, in targeting B-cell lymphomas, which we know in the United States are 85% of lymphomas. And this really targets uh, really all of those B-cells, which express CD20. What has come out since then? Well, related targets to that. So there's actually a second-generation CD20 monoclonal antibody called abinutuzumab. Um, there are other ways. So if you have that target in the shape of, let's say, a Y, the shape of a Y that these antibodies are, you can then start attaching uh, other molecules to the antibody, so-called antibody drug conjugates. So it's an antibody with another drug conjugated. You could almost think of it like a smart bomb delivering it to the lymphoma cell, hopefully gets inside the lymphoma cell, and then does a little extra cell death. And sometimes that is a little chemotherapy that's attached. So yes, it is maybe chemotherapy, but delivered in a very targeted fashion. And so there have been a couple of these we can now say approved, including one, uh, frankly, FDA approved last week to treat relapse refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, prior one targeting CD30, treating Hodgkin lymphoma, and CD30 positive T cell lymphoma. Another treatment that we don't use as much, I wish we did, quite frankly, is called radioimmunotherapy. 
we've known for many decades that lymphoma is very sensitive to radiation. The problem where we can't use typical radiation externally outside the body is, well, if lymphoma is all over the body, it's a challenge to radiate the whole body. But if you can attach it to these antibodies, it can deliver it. So the good news is it was approved. The bad news is um, it's not used as much, but there are some new ones on the horizon. So I'm hopeful some of those will reemerge in the near future. And just to finish out framework of what else is available. And again, these are all in the last few years, just really, really significant breakthroughs. And certainly you can't have a lymphoma treatment talk without talking about CAR T-cell therapy that we now has been uh, commercially approved for a couple years. The ones that are FDA uh, approved in the lymphoma space today are CD19. So that's another B-cell marker. And, and so that's good. And what's really good about CAR T-cells are even in patients who otherwise might not have had uh, such a great prognosis with lymphoma that's relapsed a couple times. Not, have, not only have we seen complete remissions to CAR T-cell, but incredibly durable. Now, and we can even say possibly cured in, in otherwise very difficult circumstances. The really exciting thing about CAR T, that what's available, CD19, is literally just scratching the surface. And I don't want to say it's quite like Legos because there's a lot of science that goes into it, but you can think about you can almost any target and then a t and literally transfect it into the T cell and have it go to hopefully the intended target. But there's other cells in our body that can fight cancers. As an example, natural killer cells. We all have natural killer cells in the body every day, hopefully uh, uh, going after cancer if it's present, treating infection. These are ones that are being studied. You can also manipulate, hopefully transfect, attach antibodies, and maybe in the future that'll be an option to help us to treat lymphoma as well. And then I'll just wrap up the, the targeted ones or the antibody-based ones. There is uh, other antibody-based ones, one, one targeting CD19 called tefacitimab, approved in combination with lenalidomide. And then one we can think of as targeted called checkpoint inhibitors. And so, yes, it's targeting at something on the surface of a lymphoma cell, but what it's really doing is it's reinvigorating the patient's own immune system. You know, there are many ways that, that lymphoma or other cancers grow. One way, is, in a real simple way, is it suppresses the patient's normal immune system that can fight cancer. So these checkpoint inhibitors have broken through in Hodgkin lymphoma. So what about a few examples of targeting inside the cell where there are multiple? I won't go through all of them. But one of the first, uh, at least in, in our lymphoma space, were ones called the IMIDs, such as lenalidomide. There were also proteasome inhibitors. More recently, something called BTK inhibitors. These are active in many B-cell malignancies. There are other ones that target B-cell malignancies called BCL2 inhibitors, venetoclax, PI3 kinase inhibitors. There are multiple of these approved. Uh, some are oral, some are intravenous. And really, we just, even though, you know, some of these might only have one in class, some might have three or four in class, and that's great because we want to be able to have different options for our patients. And even though these are targeted, everything has a side effect, so we don't want to minimize that. So sometimes we have to mix and match because each medication might be in the same class but have different side effect panels. So we want to pick and choose that as well. And then lastly, I'll just mention a couple others, HDAC inhibitors, and more recently in follicular lymphoma called EZH2 inhibitors. And basically, every concept I just mentioned, there's probably another five or ten new ones, if not more,
being studied as well. And oh, by the way, how did any or all of these, frankly, get approved? Through clinical trials. And so clinical trials uh, are so critical to what we do because we're not only trying to get new medicines approved, but we want to also take existing ones and try to figure out how do they work better or who do they really work in. So if something works, let's say, 60% of the time, great. How can we find who are those 60 patients that it works in? So those are only the 60 we give it to. And that's where there's great collaborations through research called translational research, where clinicians work with scientists to try to find these so-called biomarkers. And so it's just really a continuous, uh, exciting spectrum of science and research where we take it from the laboratory into the clinic and then go back to the laboratory and, and, and collaborate together. And what we're really trying to do, obviously, is, as I started, find the right treatment for the right patient at the right time. And there are many different ways, by the way, to do that. Um, yes, part of it's with science and part of it's looking at the lymphoma tissue, but also through imaging, unique imaging. Uh, yes, we know, you've probably heard of the CT scans and PET scans, but there's new fancier ones called metabolic tumor burden where you can start to measure and quantify the amount of lymphoma. And can we use that as a guide? And really, a really exciting one, we, we always talk about, can we have a liquid biopsy, it's called. In other words, it's been a little maybe us behind the, the, the curve in lymphoma because we don't have a blood test for lymphoma. Well, there are some. It's called MRD or CTDNA. So it hasn't broken through quite yet, but I'm, I'm quite excited and hopeful that in the next couple of years, we will have something to be able to measure lymphoma in the blood. So altogether, as I'm sure you can tell, just a lot of exciting progress uh, and I'll stop there. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Evans. That was really wonderful, very comprehensive, and uh, uh, a lot of material covered. I know there'll be questions for you during the, the Q&A, but a lot, and also very um, a lot of wonderful new information in terms of just um, the new treatments that are available that, um, that really will be helpful to everybody on the call. So thank you. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Uh, Thomas Haberman. And Dr. Haberman is Professor of Medicine in Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. And Dr. Haberman will be addressing managing the treatment side effects, symptoms, and discomfort of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, NHL, in the context of COVID-19. Um, communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns, follow-up care appointments, guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology and list of questions. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Haberman. Thank you, Carolyn. It's an honor to be with you, with Ajay and Andy. And most importantly, for all of you joining us, I think this is the largest international uh, participation that I've been part of in this series. I will first address quality of life. We've been interested in quality of life in patients through the Molecular Epidemiology Research Project at Mayo Clinic. The first observation was in a paper that we published in 2018 of 701 patients who prospectively filled out forms to send in where patients self-reported their quality of life. This was prospective study looking at physical activity and other metrics, and quality of life at the time of the initial presentation was associated with improved overall survival and event-free survival in aggressive lymphoma and outperformed the performance score. So the better quality of life at the beginning of the journey, the better for you. The second question we looked at was after this, what can you do to 
potentially improve your quality of life. Again, in our MER project, 3,060 patients were initially followed, and 1,371 patients had a three-year follow-up response on baseline health and self-administered self-risk factor questionnaires. At three years, there was a significant improvement in overall survival, lymphoma-specific survival, and event-free survival in all histologies studied, all different types of lymphoma, who met or exceeded the national recommended standards for age and sex with regard to physical activity recommendations, prediagnosis, and in patients who had a change that was an increase in their physical activity. In a follow-up paper in 2021, we looked at health behaviors, physical activity, alcohol, and smoking in 2,805 patients at diagnosis and at a three-year follow-up again. Smoking at the time of diagnosis and at three years was associated with a lower quality of life. Meeting physical activity guidelines was associated with better functional well-being and overall quality of life, and most importantly, an increase in physical activity from baseline to follow-up three at three years was associated with an improvement in physical well-being, functional well-being, and overall quality of life. So therefore, the quality of life in lymphoma patients and survivors is associated with health behaviors. Exercise improves the quality of life. What do we do during the pandemic? It's been difficult, but walking, jogging, bike riding, workout exercises at home, videos, isometrics are all possible. A fourth point that we reported was that functional well-being, physical well-being, and overall quality of life was lower after initiating chemotherapy compared to prior to therapy, demonstrating that therapy-related side effects significantly impact patients. To address the treatment side effects, there's, I think one of the first important points we need to understand is that there are similar presentations to COVID-19 infections and the side effects of chemotherapy. They're inextricably linked, and to further complicate this, some of these may be associated with relapse of disease. Let's first address the presentations of COVID-19. What are they? Number one, fever is one of the most common signs. So a fever above 100.5 degrees Fahrenheit, you need to really check in with your healthcare team. Cough, coughing up blood, shortness of breath, chest pain, confusion, passing out, diarrhea, nausea and vomiting, altered sense of taste and smell. But don't these really sound like chemotherapy? You can also get taste and smell changes with chemotherapy. Many patients don't experience significant symptoms with the COVID-19 infection, but these can, but many also do, and the vast majority of issues can be managed at home. So these side of these these symptoms can be very consistent with what we see uh, with chemotherapy. Dr. Gita Thanerjasingham in, in our group has been involved in a big international studies uh, with 40 uh, co-authored publication, and a, a future one will be coming out in the next year. Uh, and we're really making great strides in reporting these things out in clinical trials and in other settings, and we're going to further refine what we know and how we follow patients. And polypharmacy complicates the toxicities of this also. So general comments about toxicity, it depends upon the type of treatment that you get. Chemotherapy, immunotherapy, radiation therapy, transplant, CAR-T, 
or CAM approaches, complementary and alternative medicine, can all influence toxicities. The most common are lowered blood counts with infections, fatigue, gastrointestinal symptoms, skin changes, and peripheral neuropathy. How do you manage these? It depends upon what they are. Blood counts need to be followed and regimens that lower the blood counts. Bleeding, a soft toothbrush, avoiding tampons, enemas, suppositories, or rectal thermometers. For infections, if you're not feeling well, check your temperature. Again, if it's elevated, then contact your health care team. Neutropenia, good hand washing, washing fruits and vegetables. Do not eat undercooked meat or raw fish on chemotherapy. And colony stimulating factors, GCSF, and other agents may be required. With nausea and vomiting, the drugs that we now have are phenomenal compared to what it was when I started. With fatigue, rest, and exercise, exercise can decrease fatigue. What about specific drugs? With steroids, you can get with prednisone, that is, insomnia and irritability. You have to understand that that can occur. With monoclonal antibodies, Benadryl, acetaminophen, corticosteroids are really quite helpful. A brutinib and venetoclax, it's important to avoid grapefruit, Seville oranges, and marmalade. With a brutinib and its, and its related age, class of drugs, irregular heartbeat can occur and bleeding, and it's very important and essential that you contact your health care team. With adelalisib and in that class of drugs, diarrhea, uh, you may need to stop the drug and you can get pneumonia symptoms and skin rash. Venetoclax, it's very important to be careful in, in the initial treatment, and many patients are uh, hospitalized initially because of tumor lysis syndrome. With regard to peripheral neuropathy, gabapentin can be very effective. What about follow-up care appointments? Number one, these are really important and essential, and make sure that the appointments are in compact period of time and efficient. If there are issues, contact the office where you're going, and they can be very helpful, and we're getting much better at things. In the management of COVID-19 pandemic era, social distancing should be and must be practiced. Management by tele and video conferencing, when possible, is at present the standard of care, but for many patients with lymphoproliferative diseases, as Ajay pointed out, you have to have an office visit. Even after immunizations, your behavior should not change. The virus is airborne. It's not just droplet. So mask, social distancing, and appropriate hand-washing techniques are very essential. So the mantra is mask and monitor for illness. The problem is who's at risk? It's the patients with comorbidities, and these are the patients who have lymphoma, patients 60 to 65 and over, immunocompromised patients, and then if you have diabetes, hypertension, reactive airway disease, obesity, heart disease, these can all complicate the whole situation. Lastly, survivorship Clinic appointments can be very helpful. In a small study that we reported, those who attended were more likely to, quote, definitely, unquote, recall discussion on improving health, preventing illness, and making changes in habits, lifestyle, diet, and exercises. What are the general points of telemedicine and telehealth? It's important to realize how both patients and physicians are uncomfortable seeing themselves on screen. It's imperative to be on time. Ten minutes late and the consult can be canceled. Be yourself. 
when I see patients, the first thing I want to see, either in the office or on by t by video health, is the first 30 to 60 seconds. It can tend to tell me more than the next 30 to 60 minutes. In lymphoma, this is not an indefinite plan for follow-up, as physical exam and essential tests are, are required. Well, what about guidelines to prepare? Number one. Have your electronic device set up in a comfortable environment where you might be able to get to your paper records or your questions that you've written down. Number two, don't be afraid of making mistakes. No one is really an expert. A quote above my wall in front of me reads from Niels Bohr, a famous physicist, as, quote, an expert is a man who has made all the mistakes which can be made in a very narrow field, unquote. Number three, it's helpful that you're not used to if you're not using this tech used to using this technology to have someone help you such as a spouse or or a, or uh, one of your children. If others are present in the background, though, please identify them. Number four, understand that some physicians and healthcare providers spend considerable time going over records if they've not seen you before, but others do not. Number five. Physicians and healthcare providers may be going through your records in front of you and typing or writing notes. Just understand that. Lastly, prepare notes and questions ahead of time. You will likely not remember your questions or comments during the visit without these notes. I've learned this over the last 35 years through the privilege of being involved with patients from phenomenally different backgrounds and cultures. In conclusion, in my career since 1982, I've never been involved in more discussions about delaying treatment and doing less testing than I have the last year and a half. But in the end, understand that patients with potentially curable disease and treatable disease with lymphoma should be treated with curative intent and best possible therapeutic interventions. I'm full of significant hope for patients with lymphoma and how they're managed at this time. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Haberman. That was really wonderful and just an excellent presentation, outstanding, really, and covering a lot of different areas. And I know there'll be questions for you also during the Q&A. I'm just going to say a few words about the services you can access for free from cancer care. Um, and so I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. And um, Cancer Care offers national programs to people um, throughout the country. They're delivered primarily by oncology social workers. Um, we have about 35 of them. We've hired a bit more during this period of time just because the need has been so much greater um, for all, all services. And so what do our services consist of? So many people call our hope line. It's an 800 number, and they speak with one of our oncology social workers and often asking a question or needing some support around some issue. And so that is a point of entry for many people, in addition to our website as well. So for international participants who have a question, um, although we are a national organization, if someone does um, email us from another country, we certainly will respond to your, to your question and try to be helpful. Um, and there are so many resources around the world. Um, um, the, other, um, the other service that we offer is that we um, provide both uh, practical, financial, and co-payment co co assistance. And we also have some special COVID funds as well because um, never before has the need been so great for financial help just because of COVID and the economy. A lot of people were actually having a very, very hard time with food insecurity, not having adequate food money for food or for housing. So a lot of issues that people are confronting right now they never expected to incur. 
Um, and then we also offer online support groups, and those groups are for people of all ages, and so also for for caregivers, for um, for partners, for um, people living with a particular type of cancer. So cancer care provides services to all types of cancer. Um, to young adults, young adults who um, have cancer themselves, or young adults who are caregivers. So the entire age group we cover. We also have a program for children and teens who are impacted by cancer in their families. We also have a case management program, and that means that we, if we don't have the resource, we're going to connect you to a resource that will help you. And it could be a resource in your community that you just didn't know about, or it could be a resource in your region or nationally. And we will stay with you until that need is resolved for you. So it's not just, we won't give you just a list of places to call. The, the social worker will actually work with you um, and the organization to get you that service. So we do offer these workshops, about 75 of them per year, and we do also have a number of publications. That just gives you a thumbnail sketch of the services we offer Cancer Care. Now, we, before we move into the Q&A, I just have a few more questions I'd like to ask all of you. Um, gives us a sense of really what you um, have um, have learned from the workshop today, so it, it gives us again a, a sense of um, whether what your takeaway has been from the program today. So, on the the first question is: as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of the important role of staging and subtypes in the treatment of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating, and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident about my knowledge of the current standard of care for indolent, aggressive, elapsed, and refractory non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident in my knowledge of the importance of new and emerging treatments for non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And these are just the last two questions. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to work with my healthcare team to utilize their tips and suggestions to manage the symptoms, side effects, and discomfort of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the last question is, as a result, of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in participating in clinical trials for non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in the uh, questions that we're asking you. Um, we're planning a lot of new programs going forward, and your input will really make a tremendous difference um, in, um, in our planning future programs. So thank, thank you very much for taking that time to do this. And now we have time for questions. And so I'm going to ask Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board.
And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. So, Michelle, if you could explain to people how to queue up for online questions, please. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Um, thank you. And so we have some quite a few online questions have been coming in, so um, I'm going to start with those. Um, and so this is for Dr. Gopal, um, for AJ, actually. Um, we're going to use us, uh, first names. We all know each other, so um, in the, in the, um, for the Q&A. Um, could you ch- discuss more about COVID vaccine and also the lower immunity for patients with blood cancer? Uh, thank you, uh, Carolyn, and thanks for the uh the caller for that important question. You know, I I think what most of my colleagues would probably say at this point is that there's more that we don't know than we do know. Uh, That's a very broad question, and I'm just going to speak in general terms. Uh, We do know from other vaccines, uh, such as influenza vaccine, that certain treatments uh, for non-Hodgkin lymphoma can reduce the uh, body's ability to mount an immune response. Um, particularly treatments that target B cells such as uh, rituximab or biosimilar type drugs. Um, Tom was mentioning earlier that the Lymphoma Research Foundation has put out a uh, white paper on this topic with uh, the uh, current state-of-the-art recommendations. Uh, But this is a field that is rapidly evolving. Uh, There's some preliminary data that's coming out, and we expect in the next three to six months we're probably going to see more data regarding uh, vaccine uh, effectiveness uh, in folks with uh, non-Hodgkin lymphoma. What I'm counseling my patients, and this comes up in, I I was in clinic yesterday seeing patients, and in every single clinic visit, this was part of the discussion, uh, is that uh, I think it's prudent to, if someone has, uh, is on active therapy, uh, has active uh, lymphoma, or has recently had treatment within the last year or so, one probably needs to be careful and not necessarily uh, consider themselves fully vaccinated. Uh, that is the safe, uh, careful, cautious way to go. Um, and I'd be curious to hear what my uh, colleagues uh, have to say as well. But uh, I think there is some uh, worry that these vaccines, they certainly seem to be safe. That's not a concern at all. Uh, but they may be less effective uh, in certain uh, individuals uh, who have had recent treatment or getting treatment with not, for non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Well, thank you so much. And um Andy or, or, or Tom, do you want to add anything to this? Uh, what I think as being to... part of the LRF uh, uh, review panel, uh, a couple of things. Uh, number one, uh, the we really think everyone agreed that if you're about to start therapy and you've not been vaccinated to get immunized first and that you, you don't have full protection until two weeks after the second vaccination, Secondly, though, we don't know how protective that's going to be. Uh, the other point is, is that with with the vaccines, we, there's a potential for a cellular-mediated vaccine response still, but we don't even know that. The, when using anti-CD20 antibody therapy, that effect lasts for nine months. The half-life of the drug is very long, but the immunosuppressive effect in, in, of the B-cell depletion of that class of drugs and others uh, is long. 
And so we really don't know a lot of things. There's a tremendous amount of work going on, but there's definitely an increased risk with age and in relapsed uh, refractory lymphoma. I agree totally with my colleagues, just to add, uh, Carolyn. And with all that said, even though it probably is less effective, albeit very individualized, dependent on lymphoma subtype and treatment, we still recommend, of course, to receive the vaccine. There might might need to be some timing issues to talk to your provider about, you know, before or after certain treatments, but generally re really is recommended for, for nearly everyone. Excellent. Thank you. And we will provide the link to the Lymphoma Research Foundation's white paper um, so that you'll be able to actually see that, um, read that white paper for those interested in, in doing so. Um, so thank you so much. Um, it's an important question, and I know it comes up a lot. Um, and so um, we heard that, heard some of the, um, our experts weigh in on it. And please, um, you know, of course, go to your healthcare team as well and discuss it um, in terms of timing of starting treatment and getting um, the vaccine, all of that is very important. Um, and uh, the second question um, for um, Andy, when should I consider a second opinion for treatment? Yeah, thanks, Carolyn. Another good question. Uh, I don't think there's a right answer to that, or at least not a one-size-fits-all. I think it's always an option. You know, it's obviously dependent um, on the individual and, and their family and their dynamics and how convenient or not it is. Now, telemedicine has helped that a little bit to get a, a virtual consult. Of course, it's never as good as an in-person consult in terms of not able to do a physical exam and have a more genuine conversation. But, yeah, I think with expanding treatment options and com biologic complexity of lymphoma, it can be helpful in many instances, not to mention availability of clinical trials. You know, we have a large health system here in New Jersey of 11 hospitals or, where one is the big academic NCI comprehensive cancer center. And we always uh, say cancer doesn't travel well. We try to make sure most of the lymphoma and other cancer treatment Takes, takes place at one of our 10 community hospitals. But we also try to work as a team. And and we're able very often to do a, even just a one-time consult and then kind of guide therapy from afar or at least help in any way that we can. And and what, what I would say is, again, just to drill down, is sometimes that second opinion is helpful not just for a possible therapeutic second opinion, but also a diagnostic. Uh, many, uh, really every center that has clinical experts will will likely have pathologic experts. And there are so many complexities still in lymphoma. So that, uh, I guess you could say, is a second benefit, uh, a secondary benefit of a second opinion. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and a question for, um, for Tom. Is it possible that a drug that is working well would stop working? What should you do if that happens? Well, it's definitely possible, and it definitely happens. Uh, in, and even in the biologic era, as exciting as it is, these are drugs that don't appear to be curative overall. There's some exceptions to that, but then, and we don't know about CAR T, as Andy has pointed out. But the the we we are just beginning to understand the biology of such. But as as Andy very exquisitely pointed out, there we now have many different classes of drugs to incorporate into retreatment of patients. 
So this is all dependent upon your histology. If you have diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, it's potentially curable. If you go into remission with an RCHOP-based regimen uh, and you, you're, you, you have a potential of being cured versus follicular lymphoma, we know we do not cure. Uh, we know that 80% of patients in a study that we did in collaboration with the French uh, reported that 80% of people are alive at, at, at 10 years, but that then, but many of these people had other treatments and will have other treatments. And I now have patients out that, that I started to treat in 1984 as a fellow. And so, but they have had other treatments, and that's what's so exciting about this whole arena. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and for AJ, um, can NHL metastasize into more serious cancer forms? Uh, good question. Um, so uh, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, I, I wonder if the uh, – the uh, participant is asking in t a question regarding transformation. Um, uh, so I'll speak on that topic if that's, if that's the gist of the question. Uh, the indolent lymphoma, such as follicular lymphoma, small lymphocytic lymphoma, uh, CLL, uh, similar, uh, marginal zone lymphoma, these tend to be something, as Tom was saying, uh, we treat. They'll, they'll have to treat several times uh, uh, over many years often. But occasionally they can change into a more aggressive lymphoma, and we call that histologic transformation. In CLL, it's called Richter's transformation. Um, and when that does occur, we have to change gears and we have to think about it differently and treat it like an aggressive lymphoma, which is really with a different uh, algorithm uh, in terms of, of treatment options. Um, uh, the risk for this occurring is a couple percent per year, uh, uh, but varies depending on what uh, study uh, you look at. Um, and I think this also brings up the point that in most cases when there is when a treatment stops working uh, for an indolent lymphoma, most of us will try to get a biopsy to make sure we know what we're dealing with. And sometimes there can be hints about whether uh, we think it might have transformed. There can be a blood test called LDH, which might be elevated, or there might be development of uh, these B symptoms of fevers and night sweats, uh, uh, or there might be something extremely bright on a PET scan uh, that might give some hints. But you really need to look at things under a microscope uh, with a biopsy uh, to, to know. So I, I, I hope that's what the caller was asking uh, regarding this question uh, about uh, changing into a different kind of cancer. Oh, thank you. I, I think they, um, they actually, the person asking the question has said that is correct. <laughs> that's what they had meant to okay. say. So thank you. Thank you. Um, and um, a question um, for um, just for Andy. Let me just. So this question um, for Andy, are the risk factors for both indolent and aggressive NHL the same? Well, when we say risk factors, um, you know, I guess one way you could say, well, what about the cause of lymphoma? And that's really a, another avid area of research, so-called epidemiology, what causes lymphoma? And the quick answer is we don't know. There are a number of theories that are being explored. Um, I think another way, if they're saying risk factors, could be so-called prognostic factors. So in other words, once you're diagnosed with 
follicular lymphoma, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, do we have things to predict outcome? And the quick answer is yes, and there are, is some overlap between them. There's, we have really mainly right now clinical factors that are a bit rough of a guidance that will tell us about potential outcome. And, and again, several of those overlap, like what stage is the lymphoma, is there my LDH blood test elevated, et cetera. Where we're really hopeful where we can be in a near future state is yes, those clinical factors are important, but really to incorporate the biology. Because we know you could have two follicular lymphoma patients and look very similar clinically, but study the actual biology of the tissue, so to speak, and it'd be very, very different, which might have important and meaningful treatment implications. So a um, little bit of a long answer to that, but just su suffice it to say yes, but we're hopeful to, to keep getting better and especially vis-a-vis -vis the incorporation of biology. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, and this question for, uh, for Tom, it's, I'm going to try to summarize it. It's a little bit long. It's an online question here. Um, so diagnosed with NHL and treated with chemotherapy and rituxan in 2000. Since then, have been on watch and wait. Received rituxan therapy twice, the last time 2018. Now it seems that some of the NHL cells are immune to rituxan, um, showing signs of disease progression. Um, doctor said next option is chemotherapy. I'm wondering what other options I may have. So this is a very... Uh, Personal question. On the other hand, if you, Doctor, if Tom, you can turn this into a more general question that people may be asking in terms of um, what happens when one treatment stops working and um, and one has to consider other treatments. Yeah, and I suspect yeah. this is the question about follicular lymphoma, and this is the natural history of follicular lymphoma. And fortunately, we have a lot of other treatments. Um, the uh, if if just treated with antibody therapy. Then, or immunotherapy, then, then the next choice would more likely be at most institutions nationally and internationally that, that we collaborate with and get follow, we work on data sets. Uh, patients would then go to immunochemotherapy as a next treatment, such as, uh, as rituximab, bendamustine, or other regimens uh, in other countries, uh, CVR, CHOP, or RCVP. And, the whole issue now, though, is that in the pandemic, if it is still, and if it is, is uh, Ajay talked about the whole question of if, if there's no suggestion of transformation, we've even been doing the watch and wait longer. Um, we know that the time intervals to relapse get shorter, and this history suggests that to me. Uh, but we we know that we can you know safely observe patients without very large masses and so forth, and then in relapses to take it one step further after uh, immunochemotherapy, just approved uh, this this year uh, is uh, uh, CAR T cell therapy in follicular lymphoma in the United States and. Those uh, that looks very active and very it's a it's a very fascinating field, and so there's a tremendous other opportunities here, and um, I explain to patients that I now have patients that that, that, that we used to say uh, that, that that patients did not live this long as is in this situation, but now this is this is the rule, 
So we've been very, very fortunate to live in the era we're living in, and as Andy pointed out, newer treatments, it's only going to get better, I think. Oh, Tom, that's a wonderful summation of the call and that there's a lot of other treatments available and more um, so that people can have a sense of um, that there are there's many more treatments available for them. That's Thank you so much. Um, I want to thank all of our speakers. Um, um, you've really been phenomenal. And I also want to ask, thank our participants who asked such really great questions. I have to say, although we have uh, offered this program before, I have to say the questions this time have been really um, much more uh, thoughtful, and I also want to thank our speakers for just how um, ex expertly they addressed the questions. Now, I do recognize that there are many more of you in queue, and so I do want to address that first of all. We could go on for another hour or even longer because there are a lot of questions in queue, so I want to address this right away. So for those of you who asked a question, for those of you who did not have a chance to ask a question, and for those of you who came up with a question because you were listening to the program and heard something that made you think about another question, um, I would suggest that you all take this back to your treating healthcare team. They know the most about you, and although our speakers addressed your questions in a general way, nevertheless, in terms of the specifics of you specifically, we want you to, to work with your healthcare team around your questions. We also know that many of you like to go to credible sites to get information, so we will provide credible websites for you to go to um, for those of you who want to do research on your own a bit, but we want to be sure you're going to sites that really are very current. So we're talking about the year 2021. We want to be sure that the information is very current, that the information on the site is reviewed regularly and that it's an expert site that you're going to. So we will give you a few um, lymphoma organizations that really have very specialized information for you, and that would be those are good places if you need to kind of go, have a go-to place to check. Um, and um, so that's really important. Also, we don't want any of you to leave this call feeling that you're alone. We want you to now know that you're part of a fairly large community of support. There are a lot of organizations out there um, that can help you. There are some that offer 24-hour call centers. Now, they're not your healthcare team, um, but they are. They may be able to help you with a question you may have just to think it through in the middle of the night or weekends, evenings. I also would recommend that in terms of your healthcare team that you are sure that you um, know your healthcare team availability in the evenings, weekends, and holidays, because that's when things seem to happen, when people really have questions that, that really come to mind. And so um, be sure you know how to reach your healthcare team, not just during their business hours, but also um, after hours, what they recommend, how you can contact, and what would be the system for doing that. Um, with all that being said, um, for those of you who wish to pursue any of the services from Cancer Care, please do that. And we'll also be giving you information about the Lymphoma Research Foundation in terms of the white paper and other resources you may access from them. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.